Welcome everyone to episode 33 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. As always, I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. In 1891, an extremely large white moose was first seen in Maine by Clarence Duffy of Old Town, a hunting guide who was working around Lobster Lake. Though he did not get near enough to the animal to take a shot, he could see him plainly. Horrified by the encounter, when Duffy told his story, he was laughed at. However, a few months later, a banger lumberman named John Ross, who was also at Lobster Lake, also saw the big moose. With this second sighting, some people began to believe. From legendsofamerica.com, the specter moose of Maine. That same year, a New York hunter saw the big moose near Saudenault Lake and fired several slugs into the animal without the least apparent effect, with the exception of making it angry. The moose then charged the man who took refuge in a bear cave where he remained for about an hour before the large animal sauntered away. However, these tales were still mostly discounted until a New York City sportsman, Howard Van Ness, not only saw the big moose, but also shot him several times in 1892. This event occurred about 30 miles northeast of Norcross when Van Ness, along with three other New York men, were hunting. Van Ness was separated from his companions when he shot the moose, which he described as weighed a ton and as tall as a camel, with magnificent head and antler. After his shot hit the animal just above the shoulder, the moose let out a deep bellow and a grunt before coming after Van Ness, who took shelter beneath a tangled mess of fallen trees and branches. The moose then circled the area at tremendous speed and once jumped over his hiding place before finally giving up. Afterward, many hunters began to look for the great white moose, but it wasn't seen again until 1895. At that time, a banger taxidermist named Granville Gray spied the moose at a distance. A few years later, in 1899, Gilman Brown of West Newbury, Massachusetts, got close enough to the moose on the Roach River to count 22 points on one side of his antlers. Usually, moose antlers rarely have more than 8 to 12 points on a side. Brown also fired five shots at the large animal, which simply glowered at him and stalked majestically away. The specter moose, called such because of its white or light gray coloring, is said to stand 10 to 15 tall and weighs nearly 2,500 pounds and has an immense set of formidable antlers that stretch from 10 to 12 feet across. In comparison, an average male moose in Maine at the time weighed about 800 to 900 pounds, stood around 6 feet tall, and had an antler span of around 4 to 6 feet. The story gained national attention when it was described in a New York Times article in November 1899. More sightings followed in the coming years, with one reported in 1901 when a hunter from Boston, Massachusetts spotted the beast near Chairback Mountain in the Catadin region. In 1906, George Neeland of Sherman, Maine came close to the moose when he was bicycling on the road between Sherman and Maquahawk. At first, he thought it was a horse 
but when he stopped to take a closer look, he was surprised to determine that, rather, it was a very large white moose. Suddenly, the immense beast charged at him, and Neelan was forced to climb a tree to safety. After investigating the bicycle, the moose vanished into the forest. In addition to its massive size, many reports also describe the moose as glowing faintly, having the ability to simply disappear and walk in through solid objects. Hunters often said they were never able to get near enough to get a shot, and on the few occasions that they did, the animal was unhurt. In the following years, the moose would appear in waves of sightings, one of which occurred in 1917, only to disappear for years before it would be seen again. Though albino moose are extremely rare, they do exist, and skeptics often attribute these sightings to albinism. In fact, there is an area of Ontario, Canada that is called the White Moose Forest due to the uncommon number of sightings of white moose, which the locals call spirit moose. However, albino moose have eyes that are of a pink hue, and the specter moose has brown eyes. Further, the size of these moose is an anomaly in and of itself. Moose can also suffer from a condition caused by an infestation of winter ticks that causes the lightening of an animal's coat. However, this condition also causes the moose to rub off most of its hair, and their bodies are described as skinny and emaciated, which does not fit the description of this giant beast. Regardless of the skeptics, the locals take this beast quite seriously. Another rash of sightings occurred in 1932, and then again in 1938. In the latter year, most of the specter moose were seen in the forests of the Chesuncook region, along with the west branch of the Penobscot River. One vivid report came from a hunter by the name of Houston who got a very good look at the beast when he came along a herd of about 16 moose with three males watching over the grazing females, grazing in a group with three males watching over them. Two of the males were large, healthy moose, but the third was of great size, making the others look like pygmies and was of a white, luminous coloration. When Houston turned his back for a moment and then turned back around, the large white moose was gone, seemingly having vanished without a trace. Other stories are even more bizarre. One tells of a group of hunters near the Maluncus stream in east-central Maine that killed a large white moose. Afterward, they slit its throat and hung it from a tree overnight so they could skin and dress it the next day. However, when they awoke the next morning, the white moose was gone. That night, the dead and banished moose simply walked into their camp with its throat still cut. The hunters shot at it again, but the moose was unfazed and walked away. It was later seen near Ashland, some 90 miles to the north, at which time it was shot again with no effect. Some tales say that the moose makes an appearance when something bad is about to happen. This allegedly occurred in Franklin shortly before the town's restaurant burned down in 2002. Questions about this large creature remain today as to whether it's simply a very large breed of moose with a rare and anomalous color pattern, or if it is a mystical, ghostly animal that has roamed this region for over a century. In either case, the creature remains a local legend that has accumulated volumes of local lore over the years. Now a story from the book Labyrinth 13 by Kurt Rowlett. 
It's entitled House of Blood. The story itself may be familiar to some of you because I think I have covered it before, if it's the same house I'm remembering. Um, But this article features someone who says that they met the people who lived in the house where these events supposedly took place. So, here we go. On September 8th, 1987, at the Atlanta, Georgia home of an elderly couple named William and Minnie Winston, a large amount of human blood mysteriously appeared and was discovered to be splattered, streaked, and pooled throughout the inside of their house. At the time that this incident occurred, it received sensational treatment by local television news, and the area talk radio shows were a buzz over the story for several weeks. But just what exactly caused human blood to materialize in the Winston home has never been satisfactorily explained. By outward appearances, it is a case without precedent and one that remains an unexplained mystery to this day. The 1990 edition of The Book of Lists included a narrative about the Winston home in its 15 Strangest Stories of the Year record. And you may have also read about this case in the book Unexplained Mysteries of the 20th Century. In that book, authors, researchers Janet and Colin Board attributed the appearance of the blood to a resident poltergeist. However, my own investigation did not uncover any specific evidence that indicated a prior supernatural event preceding the appearance of the blood. But after all things are considered, a paranormal event seems to be as likely an explanation as any other that has been proposed to date. The events surrounding the appearance of the blood are as follows. Mrs. Winston first noticed the blood on the floor of her bathroom as she was stepping out of her bath that evening. She initially thought that her husband, William, was bleeding, but she soon discovered that he wasn't and that he was just as dismayed as his wife as to where the blood had come from. As Mrs. Winston mopped up the blood in the bathroom, Mr. Winston made a tour of the house and was amazed to discover that blood was spattered and pooled throughout their house, including the basement. The police were notified and Detective Steve Cartwright of the Atlanta Police Department was assigned to investigate. In a news conference, a police spokesperson stated that they had found copious amounts of blood spattered on the walls, baseboards, and floors in five rooms of the Winston home. The police sent the blood to the Georgia State Crime Laboratory to be analyzed and determined that it was definitely human blood, type O positive. And since both Mr. and Mrs. Winston had type A blood, it was obvious that the blood had not come from either of them. The Winstons told the police that they had not had any visitors in their home prior to the appearance of the blood and were at a loss as to where it might have come from. As you would expect, the story created a huge sensation when it hit the local news, becoming the top story for several days on both television and talk radio, where callers into the shows suggested everything from a deliberate hoax to manifestations of demonic forces. The video segments filmed inside the house that were broadcast on the various news channels showed many different sizes of bloodstains in the home that ranged from silver dollar-sized pools to six-inch by two-inch streaks on the floor and carpet. There were also tiny patterned droplets of blood that looked to me as if they had been sprayed from an atomizer or a spray bottle at a downward angle onto the walls, floor, and baseboards. The police treated the Winston home as a crime scene with respect to the gathering of evidence, 
but stated they were not operating under the premise that any crime had actually been committed. I was living in Atlanta at the time of this incident and knew immediately that I would want to investigate the case as I've always had an interest in unexplained phenomena. However, I decided that the best course of action was to wait until the frenzy had died down to some degree and it was almost six months later before I actually got a chance to investigate. I started by calling the Atlanta Police Department and was referred to the Homicide Division. A spokesperson there informed me that they now considered the case closed as no evidence existed that a crime had been committed, and I also learned that the original case detective was no longer even with the department. The same spokesperson admitted to me that the police were as baffled for an explanation as to what caused the blood to show up as anyone else. To date, the case is still on file as unsolved. So I decided to go straight to the source. I telephoned the Winston home and was able to interview Mrs. Winston person to person about the strange events. And while she was pleasant and forthcoming, it was obvious that she was reluctant about opening the matter to public scrutiny. I learned that she and her husband had lived in the six-room brick house for 22 years and that they never experienced anything unusual in the house prior to the blood incident. But when I questioned her closely about the bloodstains, Mrs. Winston was quite adamant that it was not blood that had appeared in her house, but rather, quote, rust and mud mixed with water, that she said was sprayed into the house by steam from a ruptured hot water heater in the basement. The fact that samples from the pools and splatters had been tested by the police and determined to be actual human blood, with even a subgroup typing, effectively ruled out Mrs. Winston's theory. Also, Rusty, muddy water propelled by steam would have needed a way to reach the upper floors, and according to Mrs. Winston, there were only two floor vents in their home, and neither of these had any of the substance inside or outside of them. I knew that her statement in this regard simply was not accurate in light of the tests made by the police, but it soon became obvious to me why she would want to make such a claim. Mrs. Winston emphasized quite strongly to me that if the substance had actually been blood, that she would not be willing to stay in the house anymore. I asked Mrs. Winston if she or her husband had ever experienced anything like this in the house prior to the incident, and specifically whether she believed that her house was haunted. She denied that anything similar had ever happened in the past, but would not answer my question directly about the possibility that her home might have been the site of a supernatural occurrence. But it was obvious to me that real blood was the last thing she wanted the substance to be, both because she was afraid of that possibility and due to the fact that the case had received so much publicity while the story was still in the news. Since the time that my interview with Mrs. Winston took place, I've searched for other paranormal incidents where blood was reported to have manifested in the same manner as it did in the Winston home. With the exception of a May 2004 case that was quickly explained, I've found nothing that even comes close to having all of the same elements, a fact that shows just how unique the case actually is. The one incident I discovered which bears any real similarity to the Winston case was an old one that occurred in North Carolina in 1884 and involved a rain of blood from out of the sky. This event was first reported by a Mrs. Kit Lassiter who witnessed blood fall from a clear sky onto the ground as she stood in a field near the farm where she worked. 
Other witnesses who visited the spot later reported that the area measured 60 feet in circumference and was covered with splotches of a substance that looked like blood. The same substance was also found on nearby tree limbs and bushes. The drops were reported to be in all different sizes, from that of a small pea to the size of a large finger. Samples of the blood were tested by Dr. Francis Preston Venable, a highly regarded professor of chemistry at the University of North Carolina. He performed several tests on samples supplied to him and concluded that the material was indeed blood, but could not say exactly what kind of blood it was. Mrs. Lassiter was quoted as saying that she was frightened and affected by the incident, taking it as a portent of death or evil of some kind. The rain of blood incident has much in common with similar reports, both from the present and the past, in which a multitude of strange substances and items have been reported to fall out of a clear sky. This type of occurrence is often referred to as a Fortean event. Manifestations of blood have been reported as an aspect of some religious miracles where blood has been observed to flow from statues of saints and are also an element reported in cases of religious ecstasy, such as the stigmatics who manifest the bleeding wounds said to have been inflicted on Christ at his crucifixion. But what I found to be the most common of the paranormal blood reports were those that mentioned bloodstains in conjunction with some ghost encounters, especially those associated with a violent death or murder. However, the reported blood in those cases seems to have been made up of the same stuff as the apparitions themselves, i.e. that the blood was not something tangible that would yield up a sample to be tested. Included here for editorial balance is a synopsis of a report prepared by Rebecca Long of the Georgia Skeptics Group. Several members of the Georgia Skeptics also investigated the Winston case in 1994, and according to their report, were told by the police detective in charge of the case at the time that it was his professional opinion that someone had deliberately splattered the blood around the house as a hoax, further stating that family problems apparently existed which gave either the Winstons or their children a possible motive for perpetrating such a hoax. The detective believed that the Winstons could have had access to human blood because Mr. Winston was a kidney dialysis patient, leading to his suggestion that one or both of the Winstons might have hoaxed the blood incident in order to get more attention from their children. The detective also stated that the Winstons' daughter worked in a hospital and had access to human blood and hypothesized that the Winstons' children could have hoaxed the blood in order to have their parents legally declared incompetent for financial reasons. Those theories are, of course, as viable as any supernatural explanation would be. But it is important to remember that although the Georgia skeptics take the time-tested, rational, logical approach, their conclusions are still only so much speculation, as much so as the supernatural one is, as no real evidence for the greed or sympathy theories exist beyond what the circumstances may appear to suggest. So the House of Blood case remains unique but because of the Winstons' strong reluctance to open themselves up to public scrutiny again, I believe that any future attempt to investigate this case further would probably turn up little in the way of new evidence, especially as far as using the Winstons as a source is concerned. Short of a hoaxer stepping forward to claim full responsibility for the blood's presence in the Winston home, which I believe would be unlikely, this incident will probably remain unsolved.
When I close my eyes and try to recall the sweet memories and images of my Appalachian childhood of the 1980s and 90s, visions of stuffy public school classrooms, summers spent swimming and playing with my friends in the mountain snow, are never too far away. From Appalachian Magazine, the Nashville Network at Grandma's House, the story of TNN. As accurate as these memories are, perhaps no one single scene encapsulates the Appalachian childhood of my generation quite as well as an image of me sitting in a dated, elderly person's living room while the Nashville network blared unnoticeably in the background. Whether it was Crook and Chase, Bill Dances, Country Sportsman, Dukes of Hazard, or in the latter years, Roller Jam, the Nashville network offered viewers something missing on television these days a return to a more simple and innocent time. Yes, a lot about the channel was a bit cheesy, but in an era when satellite television was in its infancy, the program was a rare gem and offered an opportunity of bonding with one's grandparents that has long since faded away. These days, I have nothing shy of 1,000 channels on television. Sadly, the Nashville Network is no longer one of them. What happened to this channel that once served as the most powerful driving force for rural media, and why did it appear so suddenly, then vanish away? The story of the Nashville Network began on March 7, 1983, when it was launched as a basic cable and satellite television network from the now-defunct Opryland USA theme park near Nashville. Unfortunately, the network was forced to play second fiddle to CMT, as country music television's launch was hurried and went live two days prior to TNN and was able to claim the title First Country Music Cable Television Network. Only a few months after its launch, Gaylord Entertainment Company purchased TNN and the Opryland properties. In the early years, nearly all the network's programming was geared around the Nashville music scene and local Nashville personalities, such as Ralph Emery, Dan Miller, Charlie Chase, Lorianne Crook, Gary Beattie, and Dina Shore. In 1991, Gaylord Entertainment purchased CMT and operated the two networks in tandem with each other, with CMT showing only music videos, while TNN phased out videos blocks for programming that was of interest to rural viewers. Through the latter half of the 1990s, the network dedicated its entire Sunday lineup to motorsports and became a hub for all things NASCAR. In 1997, Westinghouse Electric, who at the time owned the CBS network, purchased TNN and CMT, which allowed the network rights to air shows such as the Dukes of Hazzard and Dallas. It was during this same time period, however, that the network attempted to distance itself from its country music and country lifestyle image in an effort to court a younger demographic of viewer. In 1998, the network dropped the Nashville Network moniker and shortened its official name to TNN. Ownership shifted to Viacom and TNN's headquarters were moved from Nashville to New York City and the network was folded into Viacom's MTV Networks division. In 2000, Viacom again attempted to rebrand the network and once again changed its name to the National Network, then the new TNN, reformatting the network to compete with TNT, TBS, and USA Network. This name, however, did not carry the pizzazz New York managers were hoping for, so the name and channel was again relaunched in 2003 as Spike TV. 
Three years later, it was again rebranded simply as Spike. This past year, the network again underwent an entire rebranding and is now the Paramount Network. I do not know if forsaking its country roots and trading in the Duke Boys and NASCAR for CSI New York and Married with Children was profitable for the network. I can only offer my personal opinion by saying that I sure do miss seeing the Nashville network I remember from my childhood. Like so many other things, the old TNN is a distant relic of American goodness before New York suits got a hold of it and ruined it. from the Mysterious Universe at themysteriousuniverse.org Government Manipulation and the Virgin Mary It may surprise many to learn that religious-themed manipulation by government agencies and contracted think tanks has been going on for a very long time. This fact is in evidence in the pages of a fascinating report written back on April 14, 1950 by a woman named Jean M. Hungerford. The title of her paper the exploitation of superstitions for purposes of psychological warfare. As a definitive think tank type group, RAND was commissioned to prepare the document for the intelligence division of the U.S. Air Force. The USAF had an intriguing request for RAND. Air Force officials wanted to know if religion could be manipulated in such a fashion that it would help the military to win wars around the world. It might have sounded like an odd request, but Rand knew exactly where to go with all this. The report runs to just under 40 pages and gave the Air Force exactly what it wanted. Jean M. Hungerford wrote, Recently, a series of religious miracles has been reported from Czechoslovakian villages. In one instance, the cross on the altar of a parish church was reported to have bowed right and left and finally, symbolically, to the west. The miracle so impressed the Czechs that pilgrims began to converge on the village from miles around until communist officials closed the church and turned the pilgrims away from approaching roads. That was not all. Hungerford informed the Air Force that a fascinating story, some might say an outrageous story, to the effect that none other than the Virgin Mary herself had manifested before a communist and smacked him in the face, causing the man to fall to the ground in a dead faint. A somewhat similar tale that Hungerford shared with the Air Force Intelligence concerned a group of American soldiers walking along a stretch of road in western Bohemia, and with the Virgin Mary walking beside them, side by side. That wasn't all. The Virgin Mary was proudly flying the American flag, although Hungerford pointed out to the Air Force that these stories were clearly fabricated. They were created for a specific reason. That reason was to manipulate enemy forces into believing that the Virgin Mary, and by definition, God himself too, was on the side of the United States. And that both the Virgin Mary and God were both anti-communist in nature. Hungerford wasn't sure who exactly had promoted these tales, but she was pretty certain it was psychological warfare experts buried deep somewhere in the U.S. intelligence community. This theory gained more support when Hungerford demonstrated for her Air Force audience that when intelligence agencies of both Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union were shown to have been carefully following all of these events of a manipulative and religious type, the U.S. Army was listening in on them. 
primarily to make sure that the ruse was working. It was. The extent of the ruse and the way in which it was clearly working, and working very well, can be seen in Hungerford's next words. According to the Foreign Broadcast Information Service's daily reports of Soviet and Eastern European radio broadcasts, there were nine broadcasts concerning the miracles between February 28th and March 19th, seven from Czech transmitters and two from Moscow, including a review of a New Times article on the subject. It was clear to Hungerford, who went on to make it clear to the Air Force, that manipulating religion for warfare-based reasons and goals was not only feasible, but highly successful, too. Finally, there was the fact that Hungerford had learned that the Soviets were pretty sure that no such religious events had ever occurred on the battlefield. They knew this was an American ruse, Hungerford told the Air Force in her report. Going back to the story of the Virgin Mary holding high the American flag, Hungerford noted the content of a radio broadcast coming out of Prague, which today is the capital of the Czech Republic. Notably, the broadcast was translated into English by none other than the agents of the CIA. This makes it very clear that multiple agencies of government and the military were interested in this issue of religious manipulation. RAND, the Air Force, the CIA, and the Army. And, in their own unique ways, were all following what was broadly the same path. The CIA's translation stated, it is obvious at first sight that this apparition bears the mark made in the United States. These despicable machinations only help to unmask the high clergy as executors of the plans of the imperialist warmongers communicated to them by the Vatican through its agents. And now from the Scotsman newspaper at scotsman.com, a story by Allison Campsey. Followers of occultist Alastair Crowley to be welcomed back to his former Highland home. Bolsian House on the southwest banks of Loch Ness was destroyed by fire in 2015, but has now been purchased by three as yet unnamed investors who paid a total of 500,000 pounds for the property and gardens. The Bolskin Foundation has now been launched to drive the restoration of the property with parts of the historic estate, which was built in the 1760s, to be opened up to the public. Meanwhile, it is understood that the Bolskin Foundation has been in discussion with Ordo Templi Orientis, a religious organization previously led by Crowley, about giving access to its followers. Crowley developed the religion of Thelema with many Thelemites who believe in individualism and the power of free will, considering the Bolskin House to be a holy place. A statement on their foundation's website said it wanted to preserve the historical legacy and heritage of the estate for the greater benefit of the public. It added, Upon its complete restoration, our volunteers intend to use the estate to promote education on the heritage of the house to welcome the enjoyment of its structure and surrounding gardens, and to help generate awareness of health and wellness. Such initiatives will include active outreach into the communities of which Bolskin House and its surrounding land hold significant historic value and benefit. Such communities include, but are not limited to the local community of foyers, the wider community of Scottish heritage and historic environment, 
and communities who value Bullskin to be of significant spiritual import, of which we will promote events and activities that facilitate health and wellness, such as meditation and yoga, as well as education on Thelema, the spiritual legacy forwarded by previous Bullskin House owner, Alistair Crowley. A statement on the Thelemites website said it was truly fantastic news that the new owners intended to cooperate with OTO to allow access to the house and land in a way which has hitherto not been possible. Crowley, who bought Bolskin in 1900, conducted various black magic rituals at the house, including a six-month-long experiment to raise his guardian angel. It is said that the experiment was not properly completed, with the spirits raised by Crowley never fully banished, leading to a number of unexplained events at Bolskin. Crowley developed the new religion of Thelema, which observes a number of feasts throughout the year, after honeymooning in Egypt in 1904. He claimed to have been contacted by a supernatural entity who provided him with the Book of the Law, a sacred text that served as the basis for Thelema. They include the feast for the first night of the prophet and the bride on August 12th, which celebrates Crowley's first marriage to Rose Kelly, who assisted in his original revelations. While it is planned to open up the main rooms of Bolskin House to the public, the property will be closed at certain times of the year by those who consider the house and lands to have spiritual importance. Memorial celebrations may also be held in the gardens where ashes can be scattered for certain communities who feel the estate holds spiritual importance. Bolskin House was built in the 1760s by Archibald Fraser, British consul in Tripoli and Algiers, and member of Clan Fraser. Crowley paid 2,000 pounds for the secluded property, more than twice the market value of the day. Bolskin became so important to Crowley that he taught his followers to focus their spiritual intent in its direction. For over a century, many people have considered Bolskin to be spiritually important, a magical place of sublime beauty, the foundation said. The cost of restoring the building has been estimated at 730,000 pounds, with the foundation saying the revival of Bolskin House will be a loss-making endeavor. Nevertheless, the buyers and volunteers of the project believe that Bolskin should be restored as a heritage landmark and open to the public so that its history, spirit, and legacy may be enjoyed for generations to come, the foundation said. Bolskin House was bought by rock hero Jimmy Page, founder of the group Led Zeppelin, in 1970, although he seldom visited the Bolskin, which was later sold and used as a bed and breakfast. A crowdfunder has been launched to support the restoration of the property, with a clearance weekend of the fire-damaged house organized for mid-August. Volunteers are expected to come from around the world for the event, it is understood. Here's another one from Mysterious Universe at MysteriousUniverse.org. Some strange and mysterious unbreakable ciphers. For as long as humans have been around, it seems we've always been constantly trying to concoct codes and ciphers that no one else can read except those that we want to. In modern times, much attention has been paid to undecipherable texts such as the Voynich Manuscript, but this doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all the unbroken, indecipherable codes that are out there. Here, 
we'll take a look at some other strange ciphers that are just as mysterious and just as unsolved. One early coded cipher that has baffled people for centuries was first published in 1553 by Italian cryptographer Giovanni Battista Balasso in a book called La Cifra del Sig Giovanni Battista Balasso, which would go on to encompass a total of three editions. Balasso was notable for his rather tricky and unorthodox approach to cryptography, which made his ciphers maddeningly difficult to penetrate, and he knew it often taunting those who would try with passages promising that the ciphers contain some beautiful things that are interesting to know, and even offering hints to those who would try to crack them. Belasso openly challenged anyone to try and crack his code, and when no one could, he proclaimed that if the codes weren't solved in a year, he would openly reveal their secrets himself, although he never did, and for centuries there remained frustrating enigmas, it would not be until 2009 that one of the seven total ciphers offered by Belasso was finally decoded by an Englishman named Tony Gaffney, who found the message to be rather bizarre and concerning Renaissance astrological medicine, but the others have so far remained just as mysterious as they have been for hundreds of years. What do they contain? Only one way to find out, and that's to solve them yourself. You can see them here. And this page does link to pictures of these ciphers if you want to have a look. Another older and rather mysterious set of ciphers is apparently buried within the British Library, where it turns out there keep being discovered whole books written in cipher that no one has ever seen before. The first of these is a book written in 1657 by Ben Ezra Asaph called The Subtlety of Witches. This book is particularly maddening because it includes a section in normal, plain English in the beginning, immediately taunting the reader by proclaiming that no one will ever be able to decode the text that follows, after which it becomes a morass of strange codes and gobbledygook that have remained unraveled to this day. Two other books written in cipher that have been found within the dusty archives of the library are the unwieldy titled Order of the Altar, ancient mysteries to which females were alone admissible, being part of the first of the secrets preserved in the Association of Maiden Unity and Attachment from 1835, and Mysteries of Vesta from 1850, none of which have ever been solved, and one might as well be reading random scribbles for all the sense they make. One curious and well-known unbreakable cipher was allegedly written in 1823 by none other than Joseph Smith, Jr., the founder of the Mormon religion. The cipher itself, in this case, is not bound up into a book or manual, but is rather simply scrawled on a small piece of paper, where there are supposedly drawn the actual characters Smith saw on the mythical golden plates he claimed to have come across, which had served for the basis of the Book of Mormon. These golden plates were said to hold ancient hieroglyphs very similar to those of Egypt, but no one except Smith had ever really known what they looked like until the cipher was found on that lone piece of paper. In 1828, the paper was sent in for handwriting analysis by a Charles Anthon, renowned expert of classical writing at Columbia University, and he would supposedly claim that the characters, often referred to as the characters, were authentic, and that they were a mix of Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyriac, and Arabic. 
Unfortunately, at the time, Anthon had not been told that the paper was from Smith, and when he learned that it was linked to the Mormon religion, Anthon was not pleased, supposedly destroying the paper, deriding it all as a hoax, and leaving it and its meaning lost to history. It has been speculated that the message was everything from proof that Smith had really seen something wondrous on the golden plates, to a hoax, to random scribblings, but no one really knows, and the Anthon transcript remains an impenetrable mystery. Also from the 1800s is a cipher written by the French author and missionary Emmanuel Henri Dudon Dominic, who spent a good deal of his life traveling between France and the United States, particularly Texas, and besides his theological work was considered a sort of travel author of the day. Among his works is one particularly out of place and bizarre piece called Le Livre des Sauvages, which, to make it stranger, was claimed to have been a document Dominic had found among the Native Americans of the region. What makes it all so odd is that the book is just filled with pages upon pages of bizarre drawings, doodles, and symbols, all without any apparent meaning and interspersed with the occasional random use of German words and phrases. Standing out among all these designs and pictures are numerous stick figures depicted in various poses of a sexual nature, and no one has any clue what it all means. Indeed, no one is even sure if there's any meaning to it all, or just the deranged ramblings of an unbalanced mind, but it is certainly a strange work to find among Dominic's other very normal works, and considering all of the dirty images, no one seems to be willing to even try. Nick Pelling of Cipher Mysteries has said of it, But frankly, unless a cipher historian with a particularly strong interest in psychosexual hang-ups steps forward, I don't think anyone's going to try, um, hard to decipher this little oeuvre. Basically, even if you can't read the words, you probably can get the overall picture. One of the more famous and modern sets of uncracked ciphers floating around out there are what have come to be known as the Feynman ciphers. They're relatively recent, uploaded to an early site called Usenet back in 1987, during the Internet's infancy. The one who uploaded them was a Chris Cole, programmer at Peregrine Systems, and he made the claim that the ciphers had been passed to the brilliant Nobel laureate physicist Dr. Richard Feynman by another party who was claimed to be an unidentified fellow physicist at Los Alamos Laboratories. Cole claimed that he had received three samples of the codes, but that Feynman had been totally baffled by them, unable to solve them, hence the reason why he had gone public with them. One of the samples was eventually decoded by John Morrison at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and oddly found to be the opening section of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in Middle English, for reasons unknown. The other two have never been solved, and if you feel like having a go at breaking them, you can see them here and there are links to some photographs of these. Why do such ciphers exist? What messages remain hidden within them, and why have they been buried down past the point which we cannot understand? These have been just a few of many, and at this point, no one really knows. And these strange and unconquered ciphers sit out there taunting us and waiting to be broken, their mysteries quite possibly forever beyond our grasp. This next story is titled, A Grave Matter, and it's from True West Magazine at truewestmagazine.com. 
This is written by Mark Boardman. To find the final resting place of Bob and Grant Dalton and their compadre, Bill Power, you've got to go to the very back of Elmwood Cemetery, near some railroad tracks. Away from the graves of solid citizens, including those of George Cubine and Charles Brown, who died fighting the Dalton gang on the morning that the outlaws tried to hold up two banks at once. Bob and Grat are nearly a hundred feet from the grave of their older brother, Frank, who died in the line of duty as a lawman in 1887. The boy's mama put up a tall monument for Frank. She did nothing for the other two, who had broken her heart. The final straw must have been that raid on October 5th, 1982. The carnage from that botched affair included four dead robbers and four dead citizens. The national news catapulted the Daltons into Old West infamy, yet all they got was a single unmarked grave. The other deceased outlaw, Dick Broadwell, at least got his own space in the family plot in another town. For years, the only thing indicating the gang's burial site was a bent gas pipe. The cemetery sign states it had been used as a hitching post in Death Alley where the Daltons tied up their horses and walked to the banks. Not so. Drawings and a photo of the shootout scene show the wooden fence where the mounts were tied. The pipe was reportedly scrap found in Death Alley, and its placement at the grave was a sign of disrespect. The youngest Dalton brother, Emmett, felt compelled to fix that. The only outlaw survivor of the Coffeeville raid, Emmett had done his prison time and gone straight, selling real estate in Los Angeles. On April 19, 1931, him and his wife Julia visited the scene of the crime. They claimed to be celebrating a second honeymoon, they'd been married in 1908, but Emmett was also peddling his book, When the Daltons Rode. He earned a lot of media attention, especially upon his return to Coffeeville. During the visit, the ex-hard case hired a stonecutter to carve a headstone for his associates. It was a simple memorial, just three names and the death date. Emmett gave up the ghost in 1937. His widow said he'd been placed with his brothers in Coffeeville. Instead, Emmett's sister, Leona, had an undertaker bury the cremated remains in the family plot in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. Back in Coffeeville, the headstone was stolen sometime before World War II, say old-timers like John Alvey, who runs the Dalton Defenders Museum. Many locals never knew it was missing. The old scars remained. The citizenry had no desire to visit the grave of killers. By the late 1960s, tourists flocked to Coffeeville. Folks visited the plaza, one of the banks in the foiled robbery, and Death Alley. But when they asked about the Dalton grave, all they got were general directions and a look-for-the-iron-gas-pipe response. Nearly 30 years after the headstone went missing, the town finally placed a copy at the site. That headstone marked the grave until September 2010, when a tourist reported the 400-pound stone missing. Stolen again? A search turned up nothing. Then, on November 2nd, a Watco Railroad employee found the headstone near a creek north of Coffeeville. Except for a small chip on the back, it was unharmed. Nobody has been arrested in the case. Police say it may have been a teenage prank. Local officials put the stone back, this time super-cementing it to the base to prevent future thefts. The gas pipe is also there, both ends buried in the ground, adding a weird highlight to one of the most famous graves in Old West history.
And that concludes this episode of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later. <laughs>